0: in case you didn't know i want you to understand this it's really important that you know this the church exists to make disciples it is it is the purpose of the church the great commission that jesus gave to his disciples when he said he said go into all the world and make what was it make disciples make disciples so He told his people, his disciples right then to go into all the world and to to find people, to make people uh, formed into the likeness of Jesus. Our our mission as a church is not to just give you some sermons to listen to and some songs to sing as we gather, like our job and our mission, you know, that we stand before the Lord someday to give an account on is how well we tried to help form you into the image and likeness of Jesus. And so I think this is why we believe here at New Point You know, that in light of the the post-Christian world we're currently living in and and the the, the, the acceptance of so many anti-kingdom things all around us, that our discipleship strategy has to be disruptive. So we want to embrace what what we are calling disruptive discipleship at our church because we want to disrupt the things that we have maybe through cultural assimilation all accepted as normal. We are continuing on a teaching series today uh, called Building the House, uh, where we have been uh, each week looking at uh, what, we, what we would call the different building blocks uh, of the church we're trying to build here together, uh, the culture uh, we believe God wants to create here. And, and so each topic we've been speaking on uh, week after week has, has been uh, a, a different brick that, that we hope uh, to use to help build this church the way God wants it. Uh, to be built uh, going forward. Today's no different. We're going to look at another one of those, uh, but before I, I just get into where I'm, I'm headed, um, I want to just sort of speak to a couple things. You know, we live in, in a really weird time. Uh, we, we are living at a time where we see uh, so much pain, uh, living at a time where we see so much turmoil and division and people just, you know, not getting along and, you know, we're actually facing things that if you would have told us 20, 30, 40 years ago, we'd be dealing with That stuff, you know, this stuff today, uh, we probably wouldn't have believed it at the time, you know. Um, We're living in a a very, very, very strange time. It's very difficult sometimes to figure out how to navigate through all the noise that we see on the news and in social media. You know, as a Christian, how do you walk through all this? How do you live through all this? Um, And sometimes we can look at like the, the big issues of our day and think, you know, uh, you know, that the, the, the real problem is sort of the rise in evil, the rise in darkness, um, and, and all of those things, and, 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 and it's true that those things have increased, it seems, um, but I wonder if, if maybe there's a crisis that has gone on for far too long that, that we don't talk about a lot, that maybe some of us don't even notice or see all that often, and, and it's what I would call the crisis of discipleship in the church. I believe that there has been a crisis of discipleship in the church, and that a lot of what we see in culture that we that we struggle with, a lot of the things that we, uh, you know, our heart breaks for, that we wish weren't that way. I think can be traced back to a crisis in discipleship, and so I think that there's some things that that, uh, that that we need to um, evaluate if 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 that's true, and uh, and so I'm going to try to kind of kind of uh, I guess sort of build why I think this is true as we go today, but. Um, this is what I really firmly believe. that I believe that we need uh, a deep reset around our core uh, convictions and our core allegiances as followers of Jesus. I, I, really, I really, really do believe that. And I know that's a broad brush sort of statement, and, and I'm, I'm speaking you know, about our church here, which includes you, but I'm also talking about like the church, the global church, and, and, and I just think that the, the majority of us probably need a deep reset around our core convictions and our core allegiances as followers of Jesus. I want to just explain to you what I mean by that, um, give you an idea of what I mean by a reset, a deep reset. Um, my Uncle Marv uh, is uh, somebody I'm very, very close to. Uh, in fact, uh, I had, my, my dad had uh, two brothers very, very close uh, to me. Uh, one has passed away, and, and one is still alive, lives here in Des Moines. He's a pastor, uh, been a worship leader for a long time. My uncle Marv has a very serious heart condition. Very serious heart condition. Um, he's had it since his late twenties, early thirties, uh, and as a result of this heart condition, he has he has collapsed on more than one occasion due to his heart rate being so fast that it was it was as if it was beating out of his chest. I mean, um, just 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 he's been a bit of a medical uh, 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 anomaly. You know, have, they haven't uh, doctors have struggled to figure out how to how to really help him. All these years, and uh, in some ways he's here just by the grace of God, right? Um, I remember more than one occasion when he collapsed. Um, he and I worked at the same church for a, a number of years. I was the youth pastor. He was the worship leader, and I remember one Sunday morning he's leading worship, and his heart starts to, starts to, to, to uh, kind of go crazy, and, and he, he collapses right there on the stage while he's leading worship, and, uh, you know, I, I jump up, and I'm like, call 911, you know, and, and it was just very dramatic, you know, uh, on, on a Sunday morning during the middle of a service. Uh, he, that's happened twice uh, while he was leading worship. He's collapsed while he was underneath a vehicle, uh, uh, you know, do, doing repairs, and and, and it was, it's, you know, got the hydraulic jack, you know, with that, uh, that car kind of suspended in the air. Uh, a couple times while he was jogging, you know, uh, he, he's just sort of living life, and, and his heart just starts to beat and beat like crazy, and, and, and he collapsed. So, he has had times where his heart uh, was beating so fast that he very, very easily could have died, very easily. In fact, he's had a couple times where he probably should have died. Uh, just, just it, it, you know, it's a miracle that he, that he didn't. In each of those moments, there was uh, emergency personnel who responded to these events. And, uh, and in a couple of these uh, uh, examples, the, the responding personnel chose that the best plan of action was to actually stop his heart uh, in order to reset his pace and get his rhythm back on track. I'm seeing you guys maybe, maybe know what this is, this is like. Um, the interesting thing is that it actually worked a couple times. Uh, they, they, they stopped his heart. So I want you to, to think about this for a moment. You know, he's going through this, this, this really interesting, uh, pretty dramatic sort of medical incident where his heart is beating so fast he collapses. The EMTs, the emergency doctors, emergency nurses decide that the best plan of action is to radically disrupt the rhythm of his heart by shocking him with the defibrillator so that his heart would would actually stop and reset back to a sustainable pace and I was just thinking about that this week um, and just began to wonder if 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 there's not something to that in our own discipleship so many of us, I think, are just sort of going and going and going uh, according to the default expectations of culture, living at pretty, pretty incredible paces, such a fast pace. And I think, I think by and large, successfully acclimating um, to the rhythms and the values of culture. Uh, it's sort of the default mode, the default answer, the way we live our lives, just acclimating to the rhythms and the values of culture culture. And so I was wondering if, if this morning could potentially just be this invitation from Jesus to sort of stop the crazy rhythm and the crazy assumptions that we oftentimes have about life so that our hearts can just become reset, so that our hearts can begin to beat the way that his does. If you're taking notes, I want you to look at this thought with me. I think that this is a moment where God wants to disrupt our regular lives so that we can be reset and take on Jesus' heart and character and posture. That's what we're going to talk about here today. So one of our core values going forward, one one of the bricks that we want to use to sort of continue to build this church the way we think God wants it to be built is through what we want to call disruptive discipleship. Disruptive discipleship, if you're taking notes, it's right here on the screen. And so what I want to do is really define what this is. I want to help give you clarity of understanding so that, so that we can kind of uh, sort, sort of uh, understand this well together. And, and so what I want to do is define this, and, and I'm going to define it backwards by talking about discipleship first. So what do we mean by discipleship? What do we even mean by this word? Discipleship, if you're taking notes, is this. It is the process of being formed into the likeness of Jesus, living your life as Jesus would if Jesus were you. That's what it means to be a disciple. Discipleship is a process of being formed into the likeness of Jesus. It is this idea of living your life the way that Jesus would if Jesus were you, if he was calling the shots, if he was in the midst of, you know, the, the, the situations that you were, where you're trying to decide what's, what's the best course of action, or how to, how to, how to live, how to make choices, how to, how to spend your money, how to interact with people, what kind of relationships to have. If Jesus was living your life, how would he Live it. In case you didn't know, I want you to understand this. It's really important that you know this. The church exists to make disciples. It is, it is the purpose of the church. Our, our, our job, our mission is to not go out and make converts or people who, who will, you know, acknowledge the name of Jesus. The, the sole purpose and mission of the church is to make disciples. The great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples when he said, he said, go into all the world and make, what was it? make disciples. Make disciples. So he told his people, his disciples right then, to go into all the world and, and to find people, to make people uh, formed into the likeness of Jesus. And so that's our, that's our job. That's what we do here. Like my purpose as, you know, your pastor, my responsibility and my calling is to help form you into the likeness of Jesus. Right? I mean, that's, that's, That's what we're doing every single week as we gather here today, uh, on a Sunday morning. That's what we do every week on Wednesday nights when we have you in classes. Our, Our job, our mission, our purpose is to try to help form you and your family further into the likeness of Jesus, to help you live your lives the way Jesus would if Jesus were you. Well, the great challenge in this is that all of humanity tends to gravitate towards the path of least resistance, doesn't it? We're in love with the easy button. We want the easy button in just about anything in life. And so when it comes to our discipleship, being formed into the likeness of Jesus, it's not any different, is it? I think, I think we oftentimes look for a way to follow Jesus as easily as possible with as little sacrifice as possible. And so, again, if you're taking notes, look at this, look at this thought with me today. Uh, we do not want to measure our discipleship against the acceptable norms of culture. Rather, we want to measure our discipleship against the person and vision and character of Jesus. And I think, I think oftentimes what happens is, 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 and you can leave that up for a minute, is we, we begin to, to evaluate how well we're being formed in the likeness of Jesus against, you know, the acceptable norms of culture. You know, so I'm... I'm clearly doing better than that, you know, or, or my life is, is not as bad as, as theirs, or we even kind of can compare it to people that we sit in the same room with on Sunday mornings and think, well, good thing I'm not like, like they are, and, and so we, we measure our discipleship of being formed into the likeness of Jesus against things that we shouldn't be measuring our life against. Rather, we want to measure our life against Jesus, the person of Jesus, the vision of Jesus, the character of Jesus, and how well am I being formed into his likeness? How well is is that kind of transformation happening in me so that I am living my life the way he would live it if he were me? Neil Cole says it like this about discipleship. He says, ultimately, each church will be evaluated by one thing, its disciples. Your church is only as good as its disciples. It does not matter how good your praise, preaching, programs, or property are. If your disciples are, pa- are passive, needy, consumerist, and not moving in the direction of radical obedience, your church is not good. Your church is not good. And so I think what he's saying here in this quote is that, is that if the church is meant to make disciples, and it's, it's not su- successfully making disciples of Jesus then we have to evaluate what we're even doing, like why we're even doing this. Like our our mission as a church is not to just give you some sermons to listen to and some songs to sing as we gather. Like our job and our mission, you know, that we stand before the Lord someday to give an account on is how well we tried to help form you into the image and likeness of Jesus. And so I think this is why we believe here at New Point. You know, that in light of the, the post-Christian world we're currently living in and, and the, the, the acceptance of so many anti-kingdom things all around us, that our discipleship strategy has to be disruptive. That, that the approach we have to discipleship at our church has to be disruptive. Like it, can't, it can't be passive. It can't accommodate the things that we don't want get, to get rid of in our lives. It, it can't be soft. It has to be Disruptive, and so I want to I want to just just talk about what we mean when we use that word disruptive here for a moment, because when when you first hear that, um, I mean it can it can uh, it can sound a little off putting. Am I right? Like, what do you mean? You want to you want to like be disruptive? You know, to me, like it, it has that word carries almost a negative um, connotation with it, and and. Uh, um, And so I want to to give you uh, maybe uh, some thoughts to think on of why we want to use that word. So disruptive, this is how we want to define it. A disruption is a radical change to an existing industry or market, right? A a disturbance to an event, activity, process, there's activity again, uh, to to an event, activity, process, or condition that has become normalized and universally accepted. So, this is what it looks like. There is, there is something that is in place, and, and it has been you know, accepted as a, a, a universal norm. Uh, you know, this, is, this is the way it is, this is the way life operates and functions, and so then when that norm is challenged, that's what we call a disruption, okay? An example is a person becomes disruptive when their, when their behavior disrupts what has been accepted as normal behavior. So, so, if you have a child, you know who who uh, throws a huge fit at the store. Like we know nothing about that uh, ever. But, but if you have a child who you know throws a huge fit at the store, like they they are exhibiting disruptive behavior because their behavior is disrupting what has been ex- uh, universally accepted as normal behavior. Okay, so so I want you. Th- this is the idea of of a disruption. So we want to embrace what we what we are calling disruptive discipleship at our church. Because we want to disrupt the things that we have, maybe through cultural assimilation, all accepted as normal. Catch this thought with me here this morning, if you're taking notes. In order to be disruptive, there has to be something already in place that is universally accepted as the norm or the status quo. So, disruptive discipleship is meant to challenge our already established thinking and mindsets, so that we do not drift away, but instead are pulled even further into the life of Jesus. So in other words, there, there, are, there are things that, 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 we, that we think, there are mindsets, there, there, there are uh, belief systems that we have formed throughout our lives that, that um, just about all of us have, have adopted and adapted to, that, that if, you, if you were to really get under the hood on it and evaluate it through, through like you know, the way of Jesus in Scripture, it, it probably doesn't belong in the life of a Christian. And, and so... These are things we, we, want, we want to look at and, and, and evaluate. We want, to, we want to be disruptive to the things that we assume are normal. We, we, don't, want to, we, want to, we don't want to live life in a way that just uh, is, is uh, uh, you know, assimilated to culture and going along with sort of the status quo. So let me just explain to you uh, our, our approach here. Like we're trying to disciple you into the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus. So the question is not do you love Jesus? Because I think a lot of you do. The question is not do you love Jesus, it's not do you have a high value for Jesus and, and the church, but it is are you following the way of Jesus, like the way he modeled for us to live and the way he has invited us into. Um, why? Why would that be our approach? Well, because according to Cole, a church is only as good as its disciples, right? Only as good as its disciples. I want, to, I want you to catch a couple of huge thoughts um, today as we continue. Um, at New Point, we want to be dangerous to our own assumption about what it looks like to live a cruciform life. We want to be dangerous to our comfort, our complacency, and our callousness. So if you uh, had the chance to take the, the recent uh, foundations class here that Pastor Josh led, this is a, a, a quote from, from that book and that, uh, that, he, that he wrote. And, um, and this really encompasses a lot of who we are, that we want, to be, we want to be dangerous to our assumptions about what it looks like to really live the Jesus life. We, we, we want to be dangerous to our assumptions about what it means to live the crucified life or to be a follower of Jesus. We, we don't want to think that, like, we've got it all figured out at this moment. Like, perhaps there's some things that I've, I've picked up along the way that I shouldn't have picked up, picked up. And we want to be dangerous to our comfort, our complacency, and our callousness. How many of y'all know that light is disruptive? Light actually disrupts darkness, doesn't it? The darker the room that you are in, the more difficult it is for you to adjust your eyes when light breaks in. You know, you've, you've been in a movie theater, you've been, uh, you know, watching a movie in a dark room, and, and uh, you go out the exit there uh, towards the, you know, the front by the, by the screen that just goes right outside, and, and it's, it's bright as day outside, and your eyes just need a bit to adjust to the light. Light is disruptive. It disrupts darkness, darkness. Um, as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, I thought about this reality that light is not kind to darkness, you know? It, 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 it's, not like, it's not like soft on darkness. It's not like, hey, you know, I'll just give you a minute to just sort of, just sort of ease your way in, into the light. It's not kind at all. It pushes it out of the way so that darkness can't remain. And, you know, you can catch the parallel, right? Because the kingdom of light is not kind to the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of light disrupts the kingdom of, of, of this world. The kingdom of darkness uh, that we see around us is disrupted by the kingdom of God. Our approach here at our church, our approach to discipleship, it, like it's not meant to be any different. It's meant to be disruptive. And so let me just give you this. This is another quote uh, from our foundations class. But our philosophy of discipleship really looks like this. We strive for depth over entertainment, formation over feelings, and disruption over comfort. So we're all about having a good time. Like, like we love you know we love to have a good time. We've thrown plenty of parties around here. Uh, entertainment isn't something that we think is in and of itself wrong, but our primary purpose is not to just entertain you on a Sunday morning, right? To just entertain you when you when you're in you know discipleship environments at our church. Like we strive for depth because depth is the only thing that will uh, you know that will allow you to last when when things don't go well for you. Formation over. Feeling like I, I care all, all about feeling. I care a lot about it, I should say. And you know, I grew up in, in, in an environment that was that, that, that was uh, a church environment that uh, valued emotion, valued feelings, and, and you know, uh, you know the goosebumps and, and all that stuff, you know, in, in the presence of God. But primarily, our purpose here is, is not to just give you a bunch of feelings uh, that make you feel good. We w- we want you to be formed into the likeness of Jesus. Formation over feelings, and then and then here disruption over. Over comfort, what we're talking about right here, and so to live a Jesus-centered life is to resist the drift towards passivity and comfort. It's why it's why a lot of times the messages that you hear uh, on on a Sunday aren't aren't always very easy to, to, to sort of digest, uh, to sort of take in. You're like, man, I just I wish like to go a little softer. I mean, I've had times of even sitting there going, man, Josh, what do you like? You probably should lighten up, you know, and and uh, and and you know like and. Honestly, like, like there there are things that we have taught over the last, um, you know, uh, uh, at least a couple years or more where, that, that, that that I understand aren't easy. But we're we're living at a time where we where we, we just believe that that uh it, that that, it, that there is so much like formation that happens from from Monday through Saturday that on Sunday Sundays and in whatever other environments we can get you in, we have to disrupt some of the programming, that culture. Uh, does to all of us, including me. Um, I want to I want to introduce a thought to you, or or a phrase to you, a term, um, and it's it's this. It's disruptive innovations. It's not on the screen, but it's called disruptive innovations. Clayton Christensen, um, in in this book, uh, The Invader's Dilemma from 1997, he wrote this about this. He, he defined what it was. He said disruptive innovation refers to a process in which an underrated product or service starts to become popular enough to replace or displace a conventional product or service. So he, he actually like coined this term disruptive innovation and uh, really this idea of, of something that is sort of on the fringe of the market, it's an underrated product, starts to become really popular and it starts, starts to be used by lots of people that it begins to actually replace or displace uh, what, what has been nor- normal for that market or that industry. And so here's some examples of disruptive Uh, innovations, um, Apple would be one of them. If you remember back to the late '90s, early 2000s, the personal computer world was dominated by Microsoft for their software, and hardware was like IBM. It would have been uh, like Dell, uh, you know, Compact Gateway. I mean, th- these were the ones who were making all the computers at the time. Apple steps into this, you know, uh, it, it, you know, th- through this like rebranding and, and Steve Jobs being the CEO, and decides, hey, we'll make a better software, and we'll make a better, we'll b- make a better machine, and, uh, disrupts the, the personal computer market that had long been monopolized by those, those companies. How many of y'all know that Amazon has been um, a disruptive innovation to the shopping experience? I mean, you just, you just go to just about any shopping mall and you see, you see plenty of stores that are empty. You can, you can uh, go to different parts of our city and see you know, big box stores that have, that have just gone, gone out of business. Uh, Amazon has disrupted the entire way that people shop the entire way that people shop. It's an an example of a disruptive innovation. Uh, Netflix is another example. Uh, Netflix, along with other streaming services, is continuing to disrupt the entertainment industry. So the way that you consume entertainment has changed exponentially in the last 10 years, wouldn't you say? I mean, it's an entirely different world for entertainment consumption, and Netflix has been uh, on, on the uh, the bleeding edge of that, that innovation. Uber is a, is a uh, disruptive innovation. Uh, has has changed uh, and replaced the taxi industry in many ways uh, for, for travelers throughout the U.S. and internationally as well. Uh, another one I, I thought was interesting um, was Wikipedia. Uh, they mentioned that Wikipedia was, was another um, disruptive innovation. You used to have to pay $1,000 or more for hundreds of pounds worth of hardcover Britannica encyclopedias, you remember? And sometimes you have people even coming door to, you know, to your door and trying to, you know, anybody ever buy, like, encyclopedias from a door-to-door salesman? Just, come on, we can all be, okay, yeah, yeah, my gosh. Uh, we're all laughing and making fun of you right now, but that, it just seems so otherworldly at this point, right? Um, you'd buy these encyclopedias and you would hope that the printed content like, like wouldn't need to be updated for at least a couple years so you wouldn't have to buy updated versions of those encyclopedias. And, um, and so Wikipedia, it's updated constantly, it's free. Uh, when it first came onto the scene, it, it wasn't really uh, fully trusted, uh, but, but it, has, it has come a long way in that regard. It has become a disruptive innovation to the information market. The other, the other contrast to this to a disruptive innovation is what they call a sustaining innovation. A sustaining innovation is, is this. In, in, in a given market, you have, you have disruptive innovations, and the contrast is a sustaining innovation. And, and sustaining innovations are basically improvements upon existing products. They are n- new inventions and modifications generated by incumbent businesses in an attempt to stay relevant with customers meant to sustain the, business, the business's market share, okay? So, in any organization or business, once the machine is, is rolling, you have to perform consistent and constant maintenance in order, in order to continue to retain your, custo- your customers. With the emphasis being put on remaining relevant in an evolving Market, so you can see like all kinds of businesses over the years that have like had their meteoric rise and then have like you know uh, declined rapidly. You can see the attempts they made to sort of sustain uh, you know themselves through through different kind of rebranding and new new things they would put into the market. These sustaining innovations can be valuable too, but in most cases, products and services developed along these lines. They say become too sophisticated, too inaccessible, or too expensive to have any real lasting power. Let me give you an example of uh, a sustaining innovation. How many of y'all um, used to frequent Blockbuster video? Got some Blockbuster fans in the house, right? Uh, my kids do not understand uh, what Blockbuster is. Um, how many of y'all remember having to like rewind the video before you, you took it back or you get charged to your account? If you remember, like like several years ago, I would say probably like like ten or more years ago, um, Redbox came onto the scene to kind of disrupt the 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 video rental industry, and uh, they had these kiosks outside key places you would frequent where you could get a movie for a dollar. Right? They're still there. Do you remember that Blockbuster tried this? Blockbuster tried to do this. They had they had their own kiosks, Blockbuster branded, to try to compete with Redbox, and it it obviously did not work. It was a sustaining innovation all in attempt to retain their customers. When Netflix got started, Blockbuster thought that Netflix seemed totally insignificant. Netflix was at first a subscri- subscription service, if you remember, where you would have to request certain movies. They would be in your queue. They would be mailed to you. You remember this? They'd be mailed to you. Then you would watch them. You would send them back. And, and so Blockbuster didn't take, take Netflix seriously because they thought who would want to wait for DVDs to arrive in the mail. Blockbuster didn't anticipate where the future of watching movies was going and so when Netflix came to them to sell them their business, Blockbuster declined. Netflix today is worth billions and Blockbuster is bankrupt, right? Let me try to bring this home. I think I can make sense of this. Um, For a while in the 80s, 90s, and even 2000s, I think in some cases it's still even true today, as a church was in decline, there became a high emphasis on the church, in the church, on being culturally relevant all in an attempt to retain its customers. The people who would sit in chairs, the people who would pay the bills, right? I mean, it it was, there there became a high emphasis on just being culturally relevant. The church began to cater to the consumer, so there were then coffee shops started to pop up inside churches, bookstores, comfortable stadium seating, smoke machines, a concert experience, right? Every kind of class you could think of, all in an attempt to create a one-stop shop for the Christian consumer. The idea was this, whatever you think you need we have it here. Whatever you think you need, we have it here. The result, in an attempt to sustain the church that was in decline, right? This is a sustaining innovation. In an attempt to sustain the church that was in decline, the church in the West, in my opinion, has become, has become severely lost in a, in a lot of places, in certain pockets at least. And I think it needs to experience a great disruption. A great disruption. Jesus, if you... Notice, anything about him, he was always game for disrupting the leading thoughts and the leading ideas of his day. Mark 12, he gives us, a, uh, gives us a really interesting encounter that Jesus has with some religious leaders. And I think in Mark 12, Jesus really establishes a way forward for us in our own disruptive discipleship. And so uh, Mark chapter 12, um, starting in verse 28, this is where Jesus lays out the greatest commandment here, here's how it starts in verse 28 it says one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating noticing that jesus had given them a good answer he asked him of all the commandments which one is most important okay so during the final week of jesus's ministry here on earth he spends every day in the temple during this week he has dramatically cleansed the temple uh, exposing corruption with the present sacrificial system, and his fame is growing at an incredible rate. Right, He has turned over the tables, uh, the, 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 the money changers at the temple. Like, like Jesus has done a lot at the temple in, in, in this week leading up to his, his death, and his popularity is on the rise. The religious leaders are offended by his teachings. They are worried about Jesus' claims and his popularity, and they begin publicly confronting him. Hoping to trap him, they ask him political, social, and religious questions, all the hot topics of the day, intending to trip him up so that he would lose face and and lose his popularity and lose his reputation, okay? Every single time, as you read the Gospels, what, what happens? Like Jesus responds with incredible wisdom, and he turns their questions back on them. The result is that the religious leaders become... Highly embarrassed in front of the people, and the public becomes even more and more amazed by Jesus. So in this story, verse 28 that we just read, one of the teachers of the law, having heard these ongoing debates with other religious leaders and Jesus, seems to have a growing respect for Jesus as he's heard him talk. And so he comes to him and he says, which is the most important commandment? Let's read verse 28 again. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, right? So there's a little bit of respect. Hey, that's, that's not bad. I kind of agree with you. He asked him, okay, so of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now remember, this is the question that is being, this question is being asked in the temple courts. Surrounded by sacrifices tithes money changers scribes and religious leaders the setting of this question is pretty critical the teacher of the law asked jesus a question that many teachers of the law at the time had been trying to answer and had been discussing amongst themselves and amongst their own followers in fact it was common at that time for each rabbi to have their own list of commands their own list of important laws and they had them in 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 certain orders uh, different laws found in the torah these are the most important these are the ones you should follow and so this religious leader asked Jesus what he thinks. Like, what, what, do you, what do you think? Everyone's talking about what are the most important commandments. Like, like, what's your thoughts on this? And so Jesus, as you would expect him, he responds. He responds in kind. And verse 29 says, uh, says this. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. If there is no, he says, it says uh, there is no commandment greater than these. Verse 32, well said, teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had, uh, Answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So remember, this is at the temple under the shadow of the sacrificial system and the political system of their day. Jesus is essentially saying that those things, the sacrificial system, the political system that you are you are you know, uh, surrounded by, that they are pretty much irrelevant when compared to having love for God and love for your neighbor. He's really saying here that what matters most in life is passion for the one true God and compassion for the people that God created. And so I think that in this story, there's really a couple, couple things that I, I would consider to be primary challenges to our discipleship. In fact, I actually wrote this message differently, and it was like 12 pages, and I just could not, uh, could not do that to you. Um, and so... I shortened this up significantly, but, but let me just tell you like, where I was headed, because in this, in this story, Jesus says, the mo- he says, he says, the most important commandment is this, hear, o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, we're going to talk about that in a second here. And then he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and your strength. Like, this is the way of discipleship and the way of spiritual formation. Our heart Our soul, our mind, and our strength all coming under the lordship of Jesus. Jesus lays out a discipleship approach, a strategy that is most important, to love God with every ounce of who we are. There are two primary challenges to our discipleship. There are two things that need to be disrupted the most, in my opinion. The first one is, if you're taking notes, it's our heart. It's our heart. So this is what we understand in Mark 12 in the story, that, that Jesus is telling them and us that love for God is meant to flow from the deepest place of who we are. Our love for God is meant to flow from, from like, like, like the, like the core of who we are. In the Bible, the heart is a word that is used often as so much more than just a muscular organ that pumps some blood. The Bible refers to the heart as the command center of the body, the operating system that drives everything else in the hebrew understanding the heart was the core of a person's whole identity it was the source of their thoughts their words and their actions and so for 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 us to evaluate our own discipleship our own like formation into the likeness of jesus i think we have to ask ourselves what's the condition of my heart have, have, have I continued to allow Jesus to disrupt my heart so that it is, it is, it is you know, clean and it's functioning the way he wants it to? Luke chapter 6, verse 45 says, the, the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. Catch this, for out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. It's the command center of our life. It's more than just a, a muscular organ that pumps some blood. The Bible is, is referring to this as like the innermost place of who you are. Like who you really are. The person that like other, that like other people don't see. You know, the, 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 the real you that God sees when no one else is around. So I would just say that I think that the first thing we need to look at when it comes to our discipleship is our own heart. It's our heart. Because all through Scripture, did you know that that all the tragic stories we read about, the heart is the primary issue. The heart is the primary problem. There are just things that exist in our hearts at times that just shouldn't be there, right? just shouldn't be there. Like, we know it. In fact, it manifests in our life, and we're like, how, why does that continue to manifest in our lives? And I think it's because other things have captivated us. Our hearts desperately need rescuing. Jeremiah 17 says this. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. And so this is the Lord speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, saying like the heart is is, is like deeply, deeply problematic and, and, and God is revealing here, his whole mission was to come and to rescue the heart, hearts of humanity. Matthew chapter 15 in the New Testament, uh, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. And so what we see in the scriptures is that on their own, left to themselves, hearts are incredibly deceptive and they are incredibly evil when left to themselves. We possess no ability in ourselves to cure this broken condition of the human heart. We are beyond cure within ourselves. And so the first thing we have to look at when we evaluate really where we are as a follower of Jesus, when it comes to our discipleship, how well am I honestly being formed into the likeness of Jesus? Am I living my life the way he would if he, would me, if he were me? Because we have, to, we have to evaluate the condition of our heart. Like what is really going on in me that is preventing the kind of growth that needs to happen in my life? What, what really exists maybe in, in, in the, the deepest places of who I am that I've yet to allow the Spirit of God to free me from that, that, that is circumventing my discipleship experience and process? What is the condition of my heart? If you're taking notes, what is the condition of my heart? That's the question. It's the question we should probably ask ourselves right now, today, in our own journey. What is the actual condition of my My heart, well, there are some possible conditions I have on the screen um, for you to consider. Uh, We see these all throughout Scripture, examples of an idolatrous heart. This is where we know God but are primarily loyal to other people or other goals or other visions of success instead of God. And we pursue this with all of our heart, all of it. An idolatrous heart is when God is not at the center. Not at the center. It doesn't mean he's out of your life, but he's not at the center. It's an idolatrous heart. What is the condition of my heart? Um, for some of us, maybe it's more a divided heart. A divided heart, it's similar to idolatry, except we tell ourselves it's not quite as bad. It's where we recognize the idolatry of our heart, and then, and then we're convicted by it, and we begin to seek God. And yet there is at least one area of our life, it's usually an addiction, that we refuse to give fully to God. It's a divided heart. It's, it's God, you can have most of me, just not all of me, right? It's not, it's not quite idolatry, because there's this, this real desire to put God at the center, but there's at least one or two things that, that there's a, where there is an active refusal to give God uh, all of it. For some people, uh, they have a hardened heart. That's where you've been hurt by other people, churches, uh, other disappointments uh, that maybe you have with God, and you begin to harden or close off parts of your life and heart to God. You trust God in some ways, but not fully. Your need for self-preservation, anger, hurt, and bitterness becomes your central operating system. And so what goes on here is, is I think with a lot of people, you know, like, like for instance, maybe like you prayed and your prayer wasn't answered the way you wanted it to be, and, and, and there's, there's like a hardening that has taken place because you thought God would and he didn't, or you walked through some things you didn't anticipate walking through. You, you just feel like, man, this doesn't make any sense. Like, why do I have to walk uh, through this? Why do I have to experience what, what they don't have to experience? And, and, and so there can be a hardening of our heart where, where uh, you trust God in some ways, but you don't trust him fully. You're not sure that he is, he is uh, worth trusting completely. And then, uh, then we see here uh, this fourth option of a devoted heart. And this is, this, is, this is the goal. This is where at the center of your being you love God, where you seek to give God every part of your life every single day. You are, in fact, in love with God. And so the question we have to ask ourselves, and, and there could be other examples I could have probably come up with, but what is the condition of my heart because the heart is the first thing we have to look at when it comes to our own discipleship, our own formation. If you're taking notes, we want God to disrupt our heart so that it can become fully devoted to Jesus. It's like David like, when he cries out, he says, he says, he says search me, know me, you know, determine like, if there's any offensive way in me, oh God. Like, 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 like disrupt my heart. Show me the things that I even struggle to see about myself. You know what's interesting about this? is like the actual center of our faith, the center of Christianity, is God's passion to capture and to win our hearts. That's like, it's like what all of this is built on. God's passion to capture and to win our hearts. And so why wouldn't the heart be something that, 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 is, that is a massive obstacle for so many of us when it comes to our formation in Jesus? Jesus, would you come? Holy Spirit, would you come and disrupt my heart? Would you come and disrupt the things that should not be there? Would you cleanse me? Would you purify me? Would you make me more like you? Amen? And I'm getting, uh, yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting close. So, um, the second thing I, I pull out of this story, and I could have pulled out six things, I already told you that, but the thing I, I could have pulled, I, the second thing I wanted to just touch on that I think is, is, is very significant uh, challenge to our discipleship is, if you're taking notes, the culture that we live in. So our heart and then the culture that we live in. This is Jesus' response in verse 29 to the greatest commandment. He says, first, he says, it's this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is, is one. And what Jesus is doing here is he is addressing the cultural moment that they're living in with this response. In the ancient Near East, the assumption about life was that there were many gods. There were, there were sun gods, and there were weather gods, there were water gods, there were fertility gods, there were gods for literally everything. You could imagine gods of each city, gods of each re- region, all of their surrounding neighbors, you know, the, the, the known world at the time. There was an assumption in most of you know, human civilization—that there were many gods that controlled lots of different things—it was common in their culture. It was common, and and what was uncommon and unusual about the Jewish people was their belief that there was only one God. It was a major thing that set them apart from all the other people groups in the world. And so in this story, Jesus is is addressing how easy it it had become to sort of integrate with culture. How easy it had become to sort of, of, uh, uh, you know, be influenced by their surroundings and what is going on around them. To forget that, you know, you don't worship all of these other gods. You worship the one true God. How many of y'all know that like the dominant culture is a really, really powerful thing? It's a super powerful force. And if we were to evaluate just discipleship in general, you know, the, the, this, this idea of being formed into one's likeness, I have to wonder if the most effective model for discipleship in our world today is culture. Like who is most successful right now at, at forming human beings into its likeness what is most successful right now forming human beings into its likeness it's it's the dominant culture isn't it it's so difficult to even resist its subtleties we assume this is the way life is supposed to be if you think about it our culture is doing a breathtaking job at discipling almost everyone this includes christians is doing an incredible job of forming people who claim the name of Jesus in this generation into its image. Let me, let me, let me show this to you. Um, you can go ahead and come on up. Let me, let me show this to you. Our culture is working in incredibly skillful and subtle ways to shape and to form us into its image. Rollheiser says this in the Shattered, shattered Lantern uh, rediscovering the felt, a felt presence of God, says this, he says, Western culture today is so powerful and alluring that it often just swallows us whole. Its beauty, power, and promise generally take away our breath and our perspective. The lure of present salvation, money, sex, creativity, the good life, has for the most part entertained, amused, and numbed us into a state where we no longer have a perspective beyond that of our culture, and it's short-range soteriology. Soteriology, right there, that word, it, it means the beliefs and doctrines surrounding salvation. So, so what he's saying is uh, the lure of present, present salvation. Finding salvation in things like money, sex, creativity, and the good life. It's, it's short-term, but it's present. Like I, can, I can, it, 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 it can, it can save you for a brief moment is, is what he's getting at. Has for the most part entertained, amused, and numbed us into a state where we, are no, lo- we no longer have a perspective beyond that of our culture and its short range, short term, brief salvation that is ever fleeting. Look at this thought. The dominant stories, the institutions, the practices, the cultural scripts that shape who we are as modern Americans, have an incredibly formative role in our lives to shape what we think is normal, obvious, right, and good in life. And this is, what, this is, this is, this is why, like, like, the approach can't be any longer to be soft with our discipleship, to, to sort of excuse the things we don't want to let go. It has to be disruptive. It has to—and the reason why isn't even just because, like, we're trying to be mean. It's because the way of Jesus is so opposite to the way of culture that when you begin to, to look at, you know, the, the, the values of Jesus and, and what it looks like to follow him, it is, it is so, like, offensive to culture. It's disruptive to your soul. It's like getting hit by a truck because Jesus and his ways are so otherworldly compared to what we have been taught and trained to believe is, is normal ways of thinking, ways of living. And so we just believe at this church that our blind assimilation to culture has to be disrupted. It has to be disrupted. has to be disrupted because it is all too easy for us to drift. Way too easy for us to drift. Drifting is when we stop following close to Jesus and no longer actively resist the cultural forces around us. Hebrews 2.1 says we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. That's a pretty pretty good verse for your discipleship and mine, right? To pay more careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Theologian Glenn uh, Stassen, he says this. He says, the evasion of the concrete teachings of Jesus. So the avoidance of them, right? The evasion of the concrete teachings of Jesus has seriously malformed Christians, moral practices, moral beliefs, and moral witness. Jesus taught that the test of our discipleship is whether we act on his teachings, whether we put into practice his words. This is what it means to build our house on the rock. And he's quoting Matthew 7, where Jesus gives this famous parable or example of the, Uh, of of the two men who are building their houses, one on the rock and one on the sand. He says, anyone who hears these words of mine and, and, and does not listen to them, does not put them into practice, is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. He says, but anybody who hears these words of mine and puts them into actual practice in their life is like a man who built his house on the rock, and the storms come, the winds beat against that house, and it withstands the troubles of this life because you've put into practice the teachings of Jesus. You haven't just listened to it, listen to me, Both people who built their house heard the teachings of Jesus. Only one chose to put them into practice. One heard and decided not to. The other heard and chose to. And they built houses that looked almost identical until the storms came. Until the storms came. I think what's being revealed right now is that many people who claim the name of Jesus have built their foundation on the same foundation Of the world. Decorating our houses with Christian clutter, signs, ideas, little pieces of a Christian worldview, but the foundation is primarily built the same way. It's built the same way as the world is built, and so in the face of what I would say are unbelievable times to be living in, we need to be more rooted, more deeply established than ever in the core teachings of Jesus, About discipleship and the kingdom of God. We have to do this. It's there's no other way. And so, you know, we care about a lot of things right here. You know, we care deeply about reaching more people and being compassionate to others. Uh, we care deeply about these things. We we want some level and measure of growth in our church, but let me just tell you, like, like this, this is us. This is who we are. We want to resist the dominant thoughts and ideas of culture that are contrary to the kingdom of God. And we want to, in our day, in our time, uh, help form you into Jesus's image, so that so that we can be this 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 peculiar people that that shines the light of, of, of Jesus and, and you know uh, ultimately uh, present something to the world that that, that that people are looking for. Um, the culture just has this way of shaping us and swallowing us whole. And so this is why, you know, a lot of our approach is is, is really built around this idea of us going through like a spiritual reformation. We want to be reformed. We want to let go of things that maybe shouldn't have ever been picked up along the way and be reformed into the likeness of Jesus. And so would you just stand with me this morning? The goal of discipleship is this, learning to think, to love, to act like God. And it is the reorientation of the cries and longings of our heart towards him. The reorientation of the cries and longings of our heart towards him. Would you just bow your heads with me for just a moment? Have you ever considered that for you to be formed into the likeness of Jesus, something will have to be disrupted in your life? What is one thing you think that Jesus might want to disrupt in your life today? What's one thing he's not satisfied with leaving any longer? And if he could have his way, what's one thing in your life you think Jesus would want to disrupt? If that's you today, you're here, you're, you're, here, you're, you're listening to this message today. You would just say, Pastor Jordan, there are some things in my life I know that it's time for God. It's time for the Spirit of God to disrupt this stuff in me. Time to change my life, trying to change my heart, uh, trying to change the way... I live and think and act as a follower of Jesus. Could I just could I just see you today? Your hands today if you're here. Just just want to encourage you with prayer today. Holy Spirit, come and disrupt us, oh God. Come and disrupt us, oh God, in this place. Lord, we're not looking for the easy button. We're not looking to just you know, you know add you or include you to our lives and 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 continue to live maybe the way we've we've always lived god we want a radical disruption we want to live in this world the way you intended for us to live and so god would you come will you dis- disrupt our hearts would you remove anything that's in there that shouldn't be there oh god i pray for there to just be complete surrender in this room spirit come and do your deep work Father, take out just the longings and desires of our hearts that should not be there and replace them with with, with the heart that you want. God, remove that heart of stone and replace it with that heart of flesh. Oh God, do the deep work in us so that we can be the people that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.